Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Each week on the show, we delve into the frontiers of health and healing. I also really urge you to download the many useful tools you'll find at my website, DawsonGift.com. There you'll find access to easy meditation instructions where you can just plug and play an MP3 and find yourself in a deep meditative state quickly and reap the many benefits of meditation. You'll also find a copy there of my EFT mini-manual giving you the instructions for tapping and how to quickly learn tapping for yourself and experience the many health, longevity, and mental health benefits of this wonderful acupressure technique. So go to the website Dawson Gift, that's D-A-W-S-O-N, just my name, Dawson, D-A-W-S-O-N, Gift, G-I-F-T dot com, for access to all of those things, as well as the archives of the show, where you'll find many transformational leaders sharing their best ideas and wisdom with you. My guest today is Dr. Larry Dossey. Larry is a leader in bringing scientific understanding to spirituality and rigorous proof to complementary and integrative medicine. He lectures at leading medical schools and hospitals all over the world and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Healing Words, as well as 11 other books that have been translated into many other languages. His most recent book is called One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. My personal copy, which I'm holding in my hand right now, is dog-eared, I think, probably 35 different places with lots of underlining and lots of highlights. It's that full of thought-provoking and remarkable evidence for the, the idea of a one mind. His website, where you can find more information about his work, is Larry Dossey, MD. I'm going to spell it out for you as well. Larry, D-O-S-S-E-Y, M-D.com. Larry, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Well, it's great to be with you, Dawson. Thanks for the invitation. Larry, I was so intrigued by this book, and I know Healing Words and your other books have been really influential. I think this is by far your most important work to date. And this whole concept of one mind gave us a framework for thinking about consciousness in a whole new way. If you would mind just explaining what you mean by one mind and the concepts in there, I think it's a good place to start. Well, basically the idea is uh, quite simple in a way, and it's uh, also nothing new. It may sound new, but actually this idea that we uh, have a common collective uh, consciousness is really an ancient idea. It goes back at least uh, 2,000 uh, years. Plato talked about the one mind as we come through uh, toward current thinking. Carl Jung, uh, most people will remember, talked about the collective unconscious. William James, the father of American uh, psychology, also was a proponent of this idea that our minds come together as a common consciousness. But basically the idea is that our individual minds are a kind of misnomer. Deep to these, this idea of the individual mind is this idea that consciousness does not have any boundaries. It doesn't prove possible to wall off our consciousness from all the other minds that are out there. And I think if people learn 
to pay attention to their daily experiences, they can find a lot of uh, confirming evidence that this is just the way the consciousness works. I have to say, Dawson, that we have sort of hypnotized ourselves in our culture toward the idea that we're rigorous individuals. You know, we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and that sort of thing. And we've completely overlooked the many ways that our consciousness comes together with that of everybody else. The idea basically is that beneath the level of individual thought, emotions, attitudes, and beliefs, and so on, there is this penetrating, overlapping consciousness that includes the uh, individual minds of everyone on Earth. And it also says something important about our destiny. There are no divisions between minds in time. That's just a way of saying that our minds are infinite in time, and therefore, in some sense, immortal. There really are a lot of spin-offs and implications of this idea of one mind, aside from the fact that it makes people healthier, more creative, and happier if they learn to recognize and experience uh, this idea of one mind. Anchored as we are in what Albert Einstein called this optical delusion of consciousness, that we're a cut-off individual local mind, how do we begin to shift from that limited perspective? Well, I think the bottom line is that you need uh, to find some way that you're comfortable with that permits you to turn off your, your busy, everyday, rational mind. Now, there are a million ways to do this. One can learn to participate in some form of meditation. One can have intensive exposures, exposure to nature, for example. You can read about the experiences of other people who learn how to do this. And as a writer, I, <laughs> I want to recommend that. But I think that there are experiences that we learn to shut out, simply not recognize, that are real helpful clues about this overlapping one mind. I'll just give you one example. Fifteen million Americans now have had near-death experiences. And the overarching experience during the near-death experience is that there are no boundaries between yourself and everybody else. People experience reality as a seamless garment that fills one with the sense that they're just one with everything. You can have telepathic experiences. A lot of people have these without ever giving a name to them. Also, precognitive dreams are extremely common as an indicator that you can connect mentally and psychically uh, with other people. I, I think the common thread here is, as I've already mentioned, that you do what you can to shut off the intrusions of your conscious, everyday, busy mind. I think in practice that sort of means sitting down, turning off your smartphone, being quiet, and learning to pay attention. There are people who have really, I think, eloquently expressed some shortcuts here about how to achieve this uh, understanding. One of the people I'm fond of is Angelus Arian, a social psychologist who passed away a couple of years ago. Angie had what she called the four rules of life. The first one is simply show up. Second rule of life is just to pay attention. The third one is to tell the truth. And the fourth is kind of tough. It's don't be attached to results. In other words, get your busy mind out of the way and simply pay attention to what happened. I don't think this is as mysterious as a lot of people make it out to be. Most people, I think, grow into this awareness that they're connected with other people psychically simply as a part of maturation. If we grow older, we simply learn to pay attention to these indicators that we're connected with everybody else. I think that this isn't mysterious. It really is a part of psychic maturation, and there are many helpful ways that people can institute 
you to become aware of this. How do you tell when you're rubbing up at the border of non-local mind? And, for example, say you are somebody who is mesmerized by their own local experience, that you had that sense sometimes maybe during that walk in nature, going to a meditation retreat, reading an inspirational book, that there's something larger. Now you're bumping up against the limits of that limited view of self. You're sensing that there's more. How do you just, when you feel yourself at that threshold, how can you just push yourself over? Well, I think this is part of what we simply call spiritual awareness. I think it's quite natural for human beings at certain times in their life to bump up into this feeling that is hard to articulate, but fills one with a sense of having perceived reality the way it actually is. There's a sense of certainty and a sense of uh, rightness that you've tapped into something that is true and valid. And it's paying attention to those moments which make them recur more frequently. I think people can pay attention if they, as I said earlier, put themselves into a space where they can eliminate the intrusions of everyday life. That's why meditation works so well for a lot of people and why also it's difficult for others. It's simply not natural the way we are acculturated to sit down and do nothing. But doing nothing is really an avenue to a sense of spiritual transcendence, one that there's, as you know, a tremendous amount of evidence for these days in terms of payoffs to health and psychological well-being in terms of mindfulness meditation. I've lost count of the number of studies that come across my in a year's time looking at the benefits of simply sitting down, being quiet, and tuning into something that goes beyond the individual self. And one of the most interesting things I've been doing for the last year, Larry, is I've been looking at the brain scan database that Joe Dispenza has built up over the last few years. And to give you a sense of how big it is, the, the, the database I use is a normative database to establish what normal brain is in, among people is called the Thatcher database, has 5,000 scans. Joe has has 9,000 scans of meditators. And as we look at these, these scans, we see their brains functioning in a whole different way. They have they have a, a proliferation of delta wave frequency, the very slowest frequency of brain waves from zero to four cycles per second. And their, their level of delta is two standard deviations from the mean. When I look at the, the normative database used by neuroscientists, it's by this scientist called Thatcher. The Thatcher database has a certain normative frequency of delta in the brain. The brains of meditators, their resting delta is hugely different from the average. And I think what you're saying about practice actually changing the way our brains function is something we're actually now able to start mapping when we look at things like brain scans. And there are not small differences happening in the way the brain functions, but large differences that start to happen as you practice these skills consistently and frequently. Well, that's a fantastic contribution, and I'm glad you bring it up. In the recent uh, days, there's been a tremendous amount of attention paid to what is happening in the brains of people who are nearing death. And there are a lot of books out now that have been uh, written by people who have had really close calls and who have barely escaped death and lived to tell about it. I would simply recommend to our listeners Dr. Eben Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven. He uh, almost died a horrible disease, E. coli meningitis. And uh, they were about to pull the plugs. The family had been brought in and they had decided to simply stop everything when he woke up. This man had a non-functioning brain for intents and purposes. He had a flat EEG, no detectable electrical activity in his brain, but he came back with a story of being approached by loved ones who assured him that everything was perfect. He came back with an intense transformation of his 
his worldview. He was a total materialist, I mean, the neurosurgeon, Harvard-trained. Before this, he came back with this profound spiritual awareness, being connected and loved and loving by everyone and everything, not just people, but the whole, the whole shebang, the whole biome on Earth. I think that there's something that can happen beyond the brain that is hard to account for in terms of brain activity. This has proved to be a fascinating area for me personally because I think it points like an arrow to the fact that there's something about us, some dimension of consciousness that isn't brain dependent and which points toward immortality or what people throughout history have called the soul. What I, I found fascinating is that some of these people who've had these experiences, I've had them hooked up to EEGs and then I've asked them what they were experiencing. And what I'm beginning to map now, Larry, is the commonalities of those experiences. And one of those commonalities is that sense of connection with the whole. They report that the ego boundaries dissolve and they feel as though they're one with a larger whole. They'll feel an enormous sense of love and peace as all of their problems fall away in that, that sense of connection. And we're mapping their brain function. We know it's going to the brain, but when we then match that with their subjective experiences, we're now beginning to develop a sense of the signature brain patterns, the brain function, brain information processing pathways that are associated with those, those kinds of experiences. And those experiences have those commonalities like the one that even Alexander had where your sense of local self, your sense of local local mind dissolves and you feel yourself one with that non-local mind. It's so interesting to see these, these, these stories of people that we can now match up with their EEGs and say this is happening in the brain and this is what's happening to their, their sense of self and identity and that's giving us or trying to give us a good sense of what, what the brain of a person like that looks like. What are some of the other, you mentioned NDEs and of course you talk about them a lot in the book as well. What are the other scientific evidences for, for the one mind? Well, I think uh, it all comes down to showing that, uh, frankly, the mind can do things that the brain cannot do. The brain is what I refer to, and many other consciousness researchers refer to, as a local phenomenon. Local means that it's localized. It works inside your cranium. The brain itself cannot wander off the distance and know things or communicate with people on the other side of the earth, that sort of thing. But consciousness is obviously much more extensive than the physical brain. Consciousness is what I call non-local. That's it's a term that's being used to describe uh, recurrent phenomena, careful laboratory experiments all over the world by now. Consciousness can be involved in information transfer at arbitrary distances. It's not uh, localized to specific points in space, such as the brain. It isn't localized to specific points in time, such as the present. A precognition, a retrocognition, knowing things into the future and into the past is fully demonstrable in laboratory experiments. People can know things at a distance. They can exchange incredibly complex information systems by people totally out of uh, reach of the physical senses. Just purely on the basis of experimental findings, we have to make a place in our reasoning for this idea of non-local consciousness. And I just want to remind people once again what's contained in this term non-local it means that your consciousness can function without separation without limitation without boundaries and if so in a sense there's no reason why we can't connect with the consciousness every person no, no matter how far apart and as a matter of fact that has been shown possible in thousands of experiments by now which is obvious to think to anybody who has an open mind and is willing to look at the evidence how about consciousness beyond human consciousness well I don't think that there's any logical empirical reason to suggest that consciousness is confined to human beings. As a matter of fact, there are a number of uh, studies now that show that people can 
have distant information transfer with animals and various forms of, of life. In my book, I have a chapter on the uh, ability of people to have information exchanges with non-humans. This happens uh, also groups of uh, non-humans. For example, there are some sophisticated experiments that show that flocks of birds, herds of certain animals, and schools of fish have a kind of common awareness that can't be explained by ordinary forms of information transfer. So I think uh, the consciousness, uh, the one mind, uh, includes but does not is not limited to human beings. We'll talk more about this after a break. My name is Dawson Church. I'm speaking today with Dr. Larry Dossey. His website is LarryDosseyMD.com. We'll be right back after a break. Thank you so much for joining us. And today we're talking about the whole concept of one mind. I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossey. His website is LarryDosseyMD.com. That's LarryDosseyMD.com. We were talking earlier about the whole idea of the science behind the concept of there being one mind. Larry, you mentioned near-death experiences as one example of that. The other example you were mentioning from laboratory proof is the whole idea of that the ability to connect with not just other human consciousnesses, but with non-human plant, fish, bird, and so on, uh, senses of shared consciousness. What other proofs are there of this whole idea of one mind? Well, there are six categories of research that I would put on the list that point to the one mind idea that can obtain information at a distance at arbitrary places in space and time. And I'll just enumerate those six areas. We don't have time for any elaborate explanations of any of them, but many of the listeners will be familiar with the field of remote viewing, which is one of the categories. Also, the ability to influence random number generators in the laboratory. There's something called the Global Consciousness Project that has come out of the research at Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, which is certainly part of the evidence. There are experiments that show people that people can intuit the future called presentiment experiments, which are very exciting. There are experiments in precognition and knowing the future. And then there's a category of research called Gonsfeld experiments, which is kind of remote viewing, really. Now, all of these areas that I've mentioned have hugely significant statistical favor and and if you add up the statistical significance of all six of these areas, you come out with the combined odds of against, odds against chance of, get this, 10 to the 54th power against one. <laughs> this is big number. the number of uh, atoms in the known universe. Each one of those areas is statistically significant at least to a billion against one. And then when you add all of those together, you come up with this astronomical number. I think that the idea that consciousness can operate beyond the brain in arbitrary points in space and time, it's just simply overwhelming. This is the new way of looking at consciousness. The old way of confining it to the brain and limiting it to the present is just an idea that we're going to have to get rid of because it is not consistent with the facts. 
I know that this new view of looking at consciousness in a non-local way really is a challenge to a lot of people. I would just say we're going to have to suck it up and get used to it, though, because this data is not going away. It's increasingly overwhelming. And if we look down uh, the road century from now, I think young scientists are going to look back at our day and say, why do you all have such a problem with this? It's so obvious to us, and that's what I see ahead of us. We're just having to reshape our old classical mechanical ideas of who we are and how we operate. And there is a lot of opposition to that, as we both found. I know that uh, about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, the, the skeptics gained control of all the alternative medicine entries on Wikipedia, and they rewrote them. They deleted all the articles written by authorities in the field. They wrote their own calling all of these fields, like homeopathy, acupuncture, and so on, called it, calling them pseudoscience, and they then, quote-unquote, protected those entries so that no non-skeptic can now modify or update the, the entries of Wikipedia as new evidence arises. There are these entrenched forces that, for whatever reason information might be, are, are really dead-set against this. I remember talking to one colleague recently, and it was about a mutual friend who had cancer, and I talked about the, the work of Bill Bankston showing that he's able, he has many stories of, of tumors disappearing and even of metastasized cancer disappearing in people's bodies. He also has done a lot of mouse experiments showing the remission of cancer in mice, and this colleague said to me, well, I don't know if we're going to go that route because we trust the traditional medical route. I'm thinking, well, wow. <laughs> your phone those not very bright going along that route. And it's interesting that many people still are focused on just the material level of uh, both health and consciousness and really seem to have uh, an actual hostility toward the possibility of these levels of reality, even if they're really well proven experimentally. I know you've written about this extensively, and I'm just curious as to where you think that this is kind of entrenched. I, I think of it as the same sort of anti-science bent as climate change deniers and people like that. I mean, where do you see this coming from? Well, I'm glad you brought, you brought this up because a little over a year ago, the, the skeptics, what we call trolls, actually invented, concocted a wiki page for me. I tried not to have a Wikipedia page because I knew the skeptics would just uh, go crazy. And so it wasn't even my decision. They invented this wiki page, and it's a travesty. Uh, Half-truths, untruths, and this sort of thing. And I just don't even fool with it anymore. This experience has been Replicated by some close friends of mine. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake in England, one of the great consciousness researchers in the Western world, has an ongoing battle with the trolls at uh, Wikipedia. Changes the lies that uh, they come up with, and within 24 hours, they change them right back. I think we can just, we have to be sort of philosophical. There are some people who are never going to change their minds, regardless of the strength of the evidence. This was brought uh, home to me recently when I discovered a comment by a famous skeptic. He said, this is the sort of thing I wouldn't believe even if it were true. There you are. This is not an argument uh, largely about data, the strength of the statistical significance and that sort of thing. You know, some people will just simply never come around, and I just think we have to make peace with that. As Max Planck said, who founded quantum theory, he said science changes funeral by funeral. That's sort of what we're up against, and I just think we have to put up with it. We'll talk more about this after a break. Please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. For more from the show, go to my website, DawsonGift.com. That's D-A-W-S-O-N, DawsonGift.com. And to see more about Larry's work, go to his website, LarryDossyMD.com. We'll have more right after a break. 
Hi, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your high energy host, Dawson Church, and for more on the show, please go to my website, DawsonGift.com. You'll also find instructions there for eco-meditation, my really simple biologically-based way of shifting into meditative state. Essentially, it's meditation for failed meditators like me, and it works to put you in that state very, very quickly. You'll also find instructions for how to do EFT tapping and resources for certified practitioners and many other resources like that at that website, DawsonGift.com. I've been talking today with Dr. Larry Darcy, who's the author of the book, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. Larry's website is www.LarryDarcyMD.com. And we were talking before the break about the scientific proofs, the six scientific proofs that he presents in the book for the One Mind, also about Wikipedia and about the whole issue of the skeptics who do their best to deny that this whole field has any merit and who aren't convinced no matter how great the evidence. Larry, as far as those six categories of proof you mentioned, what are some examples of how these show up in the experience of real-life people? Because you do share many of those stories in the book. Well, one of my favorite stories has to do with four-year-old identical twin girls. I'm drawn to these twin stories because I'm an identical twin myself, and uh, for all of our life, my twin brother and I have had these distant, correlated experiences, which frankly can be really weird. The uh, story that I wrote about in the book uh, had to do with these four-year-old identical twin girls in northern Spain. Their names were Sylvia and Marta Landa, L-A-N-D-A, and this uh, was reported and investigated in 19. 1976. It's fairly sensational, but it gives you an idea of what's going on here. It turned out that one day the father took one of the little girls to quite a distance, dozens of miles away, to visit the grandparents. The other little twin girl didn't want to go. She wanted to stay home with her mother and help her with her chores. And unfortunately, as she was doing, she stuck her hand onto a red-hot iron and erupted in a second-degree blister, second-degree burn, and as it turned out, at the same time, dozens of miles away, her identical twin sister erupted uh, with an identical burn on the same hand, the same part of the hand, in the same shape as the blister on her distant twin sister. This was a shocking story that made the newspapers. The psychologist at the University of Madrid got hold of it and went and investigated it and photographed it and obtained the medical records and so on. There's not any doubt, I think, that this actually happened. This is an example of how people can have identical distant experiences that even shape their biology. These stories are quite common. There's a book if people want to read about these kinds of stories. It's called Twin Telepathy. It's by a guy Playfair who is a British investigator of these sorts of things. So that's just one example of how dramatic these things can appear. And I think it just simply shows that consciousness can do things at a distance that uh, brains simply cannot, cannot do. Speaking of which, what is the relationship of consciousness and the physical brain? Well, there has been a, a lot of uh, attempts to find analogies and models to express the relationship. One of the uh, most common is that the brain doesn't make consciousness. It doesn't produce 
miss it, but it uh, transmits it, just like a TV set transmits invisible electromagnetic signals uh, without making them. I like this uh, analogy because I think it really is helpful. It suggests that the brain is a kind of filter. It restricts what goes on, what goes into the brain, the consciousness-mediated part, and what comes out in terms of our emotions, thoughts, feelings, and so on is what Aldous Huxley called a measly trickle of what actually entered the brain. So the brain restricts and distorts often what we experience, and human history has been full of attempts to try to gain an experience of what goes in. People have tried various ways to apprehend the incoming aspect of consciousness, from meditation to drugs to sex to music to meditation, you name it. The idea of a restrictor of consciousness, filter of consciousness, if you will, the role that is played by the brain. And presumably you can change the way it filters experience. I was struck when uh, my wife and I were at this march a while back, and the march was a big, huge march, nationwide march in, in our little city of Santa Rosa. We were there with the marchers, and we were watching people who had really positive signs, placards they were holding, and they were they were all about inclusion and about love, love trumps fear, all of these wonderful sayings. We take pictures of them, and our whole experience of that, that march was uh, a peaceful, loving, positive march, but there were also people there who had bullhorns, who were shouting negative things, who were really angry, and a brain observing that same event could have come up with the opposite interpretation, that this was an angry, strident march. Right. If that was your filter, same event, two different filters, two totally different experiences and interpretations of the same event, and I, so I love that notion of the brain as a filter, and that the 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 criteria through which we filter our experience determines what we see as reality. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You know, the people who have stood up for this idea of a filter really are quite famous. Uh, William James uh, was one of the uh, proponents of this idea. There have been many famous physicists and scientists in recent years who have endorsed this idea. Many Nobel Prize winners, such as Erwin Schrodinger and uh, Max Planck, who invented quantum mechanics. David Bohm, the great physicist, was a proponent of this uh, idea as well. I think uh, it has a terrific pedigree. Of course, there's so much that's unknown about what goes on in the filtration process, and I think most of us devise states of mind that can open up the filter at least to some degree, such as cultivating love and compassion and empathy, uh, which uh, you've already mentioned. Yes, and cultivating those states again with, with Hebb's Law, famous Hebb's Law from the 1940s, that neurons that wire together, fire together, fire together, wire together, you're firing those neurons over and over again that have to do with compassion, with love, with with empathy, then those neurons wire together, becoming literally part of the whole way, the whole physiology and anatomy of your brain, then that is the way you are then predisposed to see the world, that you're then taking in information through this brain that has those neural structures in place. You're then going to create more of it because that's the filter through which you process all incoming information. So I really like that idea of a filter. You know, there are people who really are good at opening up the filter. Surprisingly, some of these people are great Inventors. One of the people I talk about in the book is uh, the great inventor Thomas Edison, who said, I've never created anything, which is pretty shocking because he gave us so much, including the electric light bulb. He said, I get information from the outside. He said, ideas come to me from the universe. So here's a guy with a, apparently a pretty wide open filter, and among creative people, not just inventors of technical things, but artists and musicians as well, often learn how to open up the filter to a surprising degree. Let's talk more about creativity when we get back from a break. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name
name is Dawson Church. There's more about the show at DawsonGift.com. Larry's website is LarryDossyMD.com. We'll be right back after a break. Health. My name is Dawson Church, and for more on the show, go to my website, DawsonGift.com, D-A-W-S-O-N-G-I-F-T.com. And for more on Larry's work, his appearances, his other books, as well as One Mind, go to his website, www.LarryDossyMD.com. We spoke a moment ago about Thomas Edison and how he was talking about getting ideas. And I remember Napoleon Hill as well talking about his invisible counsel. He was saying that when he'd have a client like Alfred Sloan, who was the manager of General Motors, and Alfred Sloan had access to all the best engineers, brightest minds in the world, and occasionally there was a problem that would stump them all. So he'd go to Napoleon Hill as a consultant and ask him if he could shed any light on the topic. And Napoleon Hill would think about it for a while and say, no, really, I can't. But then he, what he would do in private, he would invoke what he called his invisible council. And he had this array of luminaries, people like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Muhammad and Jesus and George Washington and great figures from history, Plato and Aristotle, on his invisible council. So he tuned into these other states of consciousness. And he said, you can't solve these problems when you're trapped in what he didn't call it local mind, but uh, he called it limited thinking. And that you had to open yourself to these other layers. And when you do that, and he did it through personalizing non-local mind through, the, through these these other great beings, that he would then be able to get answers from that level of consciousness that were inaccessible to him when he was trapped in local mind, and he'd then bring them back to Alfred Sloan or his other clients, and he'd dazzle them all with what wasn't his brilliance, but was the brilliance of tapping into that non-local mind. And so, Larry, more, more stories about that. I mean, what, what are some examples of that, and also how can we individually tap into non-local mind? Well, the basic idea is that if their minds are uh, collective, there are no boundaries between them. You can conceive that there might be some pool of information into which people might be able to tap and bring back information that uh, is not strictly personal or individual. And I think that's what Napoleon Hill was doing in this personalized adaptation, as you just pointed out. I have bumped into situations in, in medicine where this seemed to be a reality. Some people, their individual consciousness down in dreams, and I uh, have a folder of dreams that are contributed by doctors. I'll never forget one talk I gave to a group of Harvard doctors at Continuing Medical Education Conference. I was talking about the idea of collective knowing, and this female internist stood up in this large group of doctors, and she said, well, I get numbers in my dreams. She said, I see my patient's laboratory values, the results of the test in my dreams, before I even order the test. And this encouraged other doctors to come forward and contribute what was usually something they saw in their dream. And I began to think seriously about this and collect stories from people seem to tap into some other information source. One that fascinates me is what happens in people who are called savants, usually have some sort of brain disability, often physical dis- 
possibility, but yet who perform intellectually in ways that are completely inexplicable according to normal biology and anatomy. One was Leslie Lemke, who I wrote about in the book. This young man was blind and had congenital cerebral palsy. He didn't learn to walk until he was 12 years old, and at age 16, his mother found him sitting at a piano playing Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in the middle of the night. She was stunned. She said, how did you do that? He said, well, I heard it on television. This young man went on to compose and play thousands of compositions. He toured the U.S., Scandinavia, and Japan, and he played these pieces flawlessly. He never stood the piano. He was brain damaged, physically and out. So how do you explain that? Biologists don't have an explanation for it. Neither do neuroscientists. We can let our imagination wonder about how these things are possible. I think one of the best possibilities is what we've been talking about. There's a dimension of consciousness that constitutes knowing information and wisdom that people can, under certain situations, tap into. So I think that these are, we're pointing now to some of the practical benefits of this idea of a collective consciousness that go far beyond, oh, what people call the occult and the paranormal and so on. So I think one of the challenges for us in the future is to learn how to put this model uh, to work intentional ways and not just depend on random events such as dreams and the sort of thing that Leslie Lindke somehow was able to do. And I think there are those random events that happen to all of us. There's that moment when we're standing in the middle of a forest and suddenly we lose our sense of individual self. One of the interesting things I've noticed in uh, neuroscience research is that the usual way that brain researchers look for a sense of improvement in people who are meditating or having a spiritual experience is that they score a greater coherence between parts of their brain. In other words, all the four lobes of the brain start to work together, fire together in a more coherent fashion. But actually there's more research now coming out showing that when people are having a transcendent experience, there's actually less coherence between the parts of their brain. It's almost as though the brain doesn't have to work so hard to hang on to its sense of self. It starts to just let go and flow with the current of experience and there, there's, there's so much interesting neuroscience emerging from the, the the brain scans of people who are having these kinds of experiences. How can we probably catalyze these kinds of experiences, this kind of creativity, rather than being the, that random accident that happens in the forest? Larry, how can we how can we actually cultivate this to be the kind of state we're in most of the time? Well, I'll just give you one personal example that I've employed uh, for years. Every August, uh, my wife and I take off for the wilderness. We turn all the machines off, we disappear. We go up into the high mountain country somewhere in the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming or the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. We simply live out in a tent 12,000 feet in the wilderness for up to three weeks. We've learned that this is a way of modifying our consciousness. We routinely experience these one-mind uh, type moments. We have written books and chapters, those altitudes, and I have found out that exposure uh, to nature is one of the best ways of doing that. I don't recommend that to a lot of people because that's really kind of can be a hazardous endeavor, but people can use their own imaginations and craft ways of setting aside at a particular point in the day some some space in their dwelling to be intentionally meditative, to turn off the cell phone, and to ask and beseech this information to download, as it were, from wherever it comes from. So I think we can put ourselves 
build into those spaces intentionally and not leave it up to just random events to manifest in our lives. And that intention to do that is crucial. When you have the intention, what you talk about in the book is that often the the means appears, but when you start with the intention, that then tends to catalyze that thing showing up in your life. Larry, it's been such a, a pleasure and delight to share this time with you. I'm so grateful for you sharing your wisdom, your perspective, your eloquent, your eloquent explanations for these kinds of miraculous states of being with that one mind with all of us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Let's do it again sometime. Let's do it again sometime soon. Thanks again. And again, you've been listening to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. To download other shows, go to my website, DawsonGift.com. You'll also find easy meditation instructions there, as well as my free EFT mini-manual and many other resources. Thanks again for listening, and come back next week for more in this series.